You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. Tonight, we're talking about the Texarkana Phantom Killer, otherwise known as the Moonlight Murders. I found the entire FBI file for this case. So pretty much all of my source tonight, like my sourcing or whatever, is the FBI files that I came across because there's over a thousand pages and I went through all of them. But yeah. So this one happened in 1946 and it took place in both Texarkana's and some of the murders took place in Texas. The last ones I believe took place in Arkansas. They came in sets. And so I believe there were four sets of attacks and we're going to go over that. And then we're going to go over some of the suspects because this is technically still unsolved. So the first attack took place on February 22nd, 1946, on a secluded road outside of town. The Phantom approached Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry. A young couple parked in their car on the side of the road only a mere 100 yards from the nearest house. They had just come from the movies. He blinded them with his flashlight upon approach, like the cops do, and then held them at gunpoint and ordered them out of the vehicle. They could see that the person was wearing a white hood slash mask that looked much like a pillowcase with eye holes cut out. The Phantom then told Jimmy Hollis to remove his pants, and he did so. The man then hit him twice with his pistol, cracking his skull open and knocking him unconscious. Mary said that she thought he had been shot at first because the sound of the pistol hitting his skull was so loud. Oh, God. Mary... Thinking this was a robbery, tried to show the man Hollis's wallet to show him they had no money. But the man instead hit her over the head with a blunt object, possibly the gun. The Phantom then told Mary Jane Larry to run. When she scrambled toward a ditch, he told her to change course and run toward the road. So the attacker caught up to her and strangely asked her why she was running. The when she answered, because you told me to, he called her a liar and knocked her down. He then sexually assaulted her with the gun before letting her run away again. Mary fled to a nearby house to get help. Hollis, meanwhile, had come to and flagged down a passing car for help as well. He had suffered multiple skull fractures and was in the hospital for several days. In spite of the savagery of their attacks, both Hollis and Larry survived. When they recounted their attack to the police, there were a few inconsistencies between their stories. Hollis, who admitted he didn't see the man very clearly, thought he was probably white or maybe a light-skinned black man. Mary, who had been much closer to the attacker, said he was black. Seizing on these inconsistencies, the police suspected the couple wasn't telling the truth. That they knew their attacker and were lying to protect him. The attack was chalked up to revenge. And so then the next attacks... Uh, happened, what was this, the first one was February, the next one happened in March, March 24th. A motorist found a car parked at the end of Rich Road, which was a secluded lover's lane in Texarkana, Texas. 
And inside, he saw the bodies of 29-year-old Richard Griffin, who was a veteran who made his living in carpentry and painting. And then he had a 17-year-old girlfriend, Polly Ann Moore, who was living in a nearby boarding house with her cousin. So the couple, they had only been dating for about six weeks. They had literally just left his sister's and her boyfriend's house earlier that night. They had had dinner with them. They go to a lover's lane after they leave. This uh, set of cases, the Moonlight Murders, is kind of what the urban legend of the lover's lane man with the hook hand came from. Okay, okay, okay. So, I don't know. I just thought that was like an interesting little piece of information. So when they found them, Griffin was between the front seats. So in those old timey cars, some of them had those big bench seats. Most of them did actually. But then a lot of the actual cars had what you would see in like an SUV where there's that big gap in between. And so that's where he was on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands. He was dead. His pockets had been turned inside out. So they like immediately suspected that this may have been like a robbery gone wrong. And the girl, Moore, was lying face down in the back seat, along the bench seat in the back. Both were fully clothed. Both of them had been shot once in the back of the head. Griffin appeared to have been shot twice while he was still in the car. You have him shot once and then once in the back of the head and then her shot in the back of the head. There was blood everywhere. It had, like, actually flowed out of, like, the floorboards and was running in the running boards and stuff like that. Nearby was a patch of disturbed, bloody ground that implied some sort of struggle outside the car. Like, again, they thought maybe they made them get out of the car, something happened, and then made them get back in the car for some reason. The police also found a 32 cartridge shell at the scene, most likely from a Colt automatic pistol. And what's really cool <laughs> when I was going through this, in 1946, the FBI called automatic weapons instant guns. <laughs> oh my God. Like you just add water to it. Like it's yeah, fucking potatoes in a box. I just, that just tickled me. I don't know. That's I don't know why. Funny. So there was at least a basic postmortem exam done on the bodies because it showed that Moore was, according to her father, the victim of a sexual assault. I don't know why in the files it said, according to her father. But then they said that there was an actual postmortem done. I guess that he didn't permit the FBI to actually look at the postmortem exam. And so he just told them that she had been sexually assaulted. You know, I kind of can't help but wonder if it's like a, if it's like a pride thing, like trying to keep her, what's that word? Not dignity, but keep her honor, keep her, there's a word for it. You know what I'm saying? Well, you might be right because he did request that the FBI not share it with the media or um, the public. Yeah. Part of it. I mean, imagine back in the, like even today, your 15 year old. First of all, all he sees is uh, all he pro- produces from all this, and and we're in the Bible Belt here, is that his his daughter's been caught nicking on Lover's yeah. Lane in a back seat. Like, there's no mistaking what was going dude. on. Yes, there's no mistaking what was going on there. Yeah. So he's trying to keep her. God, it was so close. Her morale. Her oh. Her, 
morality? No. You're so close. I know. I'm going to get there. (laughs) But also, like, you have to remember that at this time, apparently, their relationship was on the rocks. She was living um, at a boarding house because she had ran away from home to be with this 29 year old dude. I was going to say they were probably on the rocks because of that guy. The bodies weren't examined by a pathologist. Uh, at least there aren't any reports that I found in the FBI files that would indicate that they were. So the police then launched a citywide investigation along with the Texas and Arkansas city police Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments and the FBI. They launched this huge investigation. They interviewed dozens of witnesses, including customers and employees of Club Dallas, which was a bar that was really close to the crime scene. And by the end of March, police had posted a $500 reward for information that would lead them to the killer. Now, this is 1946. $500 is a lot of money. A lot, lot. You can buy probably a whole car with it. They couldn't tie anyone to the murders right off the bat. Hollis and Larry insisted that the killer was probably the same man who attacked them, but they were ignored. The third attacks. Three weeks after the murders of Griffin and Moore, a 15-year-old saxophonist, Betty Jo Booker, was getting a ride home from her longtime friend, Paul Martin, who was 16. She had been playing with her band at the local VFW, and the gig had gone long into the early morning hours of April 14th. Martin and Booker had begun dating after a long friendship, dating back to kindergarten. When Booker got into Martin's car, it was the last time either of them would be seen alive. Oh my god, Betty Jo. They were just babies. Babies. Okay, six hours later, just before dawn, some travelers who were driving through Texarkana saw a young man lying on his side on North Park Road. As they approached, they could see something was very wrong. The young man had been shot multiple times, once in the face, once in the hand, once in the back, and once through the back of his neck. The weapon used was a 32 Colt automatic pistol, instant, (laughs) the same kind used in the Griffin Moore murders. As the police searched the area, they noticed a bloody area further down the road near a fence, again pointing to a struggle but they didn't find Booker's body until about 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from where Martin was found. She was lying on her back, fully clothed, her coat buttoned up to her neck, and her hand in one of her pockets, a strange position that most likely was staged. She had been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the face with a 32. Martin's car was found another two miles away with the keys still in it. Booker's saxophone, however, was nowhere to be found. Forensic examinations of the bodies revealed that they had both put up a struggle and Booker had been sexually assaulted, quote unquote, in the same manner as Moore. This detail was never released to the public in the developing stages of these cases. Fear gripped the city. The whole town was put under a curfew and businesses closed early. The reward fund grew $1,700. Rumors about the killer's identity circulated in both the press and among the community, but no viable suspect had yet emerged. The press, seeing as how the killer was so elusive, dubbed him the Phantom Killer, or Slayer, and the murders were called the Moonlight Murders in the press as well. Here in these files that you and I are looking at, they um, are looking at the bullets and the cartridge cases that were submitted from both of the murder scenes. 
and they found that it was fired from the same firearm. Instant gun, 32 automatic bearing rifle. They also collected latent fingerprints, and I believe they never found any matches to any prints that were at either scene. And one of them, one of the prints they actually found from the steering wheel, and they they matched or they tried to match it against the owner of the car, which I guess is probably his dad or something like that, because it just says owner of the car and then the two victims. No match on that. They also swabbed the vaginal passage of her, yeah, for male seminal secretion. And then they took a saline solution wash of the boy to match it against, and it was negative. So they know that she did not have sex with him that night, yet she did have sex of some sort. So they assume Mm -hmm. that she was probably raped. So they were kind of starting to put these two cases together. I don't know why they're still excluding the very first case, but I guess they just didn't feel like they were connected. I don't know. I would have thought they were immediately. So then, okay, the final attacks. This one is kind of weird, and we'll we'll discuss this more way later uh, on my thoughts of why this may not actually be a phantom killer attack. On May 3rd, 1946, so we've had one every single month up to this point. Virgil and Katie Starks, who were both 36 years old, lived on a farm about 10 miles outside of town on the Arkansas side of Texarkana. Virgil had been working hard that day, and in the evening he sat down in his chair to listen to the radio and read the paper. And Katie gave him a heating pad for his back, and then she went to bed. She said she had a hard time falling asleep that night because she thought she heard some noises outside. And, like, not super loud noises. She never described them as, like, banging or anything like that. But, like, you know how sometimes you can hear your, um, like there may be a bush out there or something and the wind blows and like scrapes your window or something. Yeah. She just kept hearing little things like that and it just kept like creeping her out. And so she couldn't go to bed. She yelled down the hall for Virgil to turn down the radio so that she could like hear whatever it may be better. And then she heard the sound of breaking glass from coming from in the living room. So she gets up out of bed, runs down to the living room to see what happens. She sees Virgil stand up and then immediately fall back down into his chair. She runs over to him, lifts his head up, and he's absolutely covered in blood. And he's already dead. And she sees that he's been shot twice in the back of his head. Through, yes, through the living room window. Does it say anything about how it was set up? From what I understand, the chair itself was not against a wall. It was more mid-living room. It doesn't describe the chair, like what kind of chair it is or anything like that. And from what I understand, this was like a large window, kind of like the one I have in my living room, where it doesn't have... um, It's very large, uh, and it doesn't have... I don't know, what do you call them? Um, Bars or whatever that goes up through the middle... Uh, that like gives it that cross in the middle of the the window. Yeah, 
It's just this giant open window. And back then in the 40s, like, nobody freaking locked their doors. Nobody, like, closed their curtains. Like, you know. It's our canon. Like, it's still, I mean, it's obviously it's bigger than it was, but it's still kind of quaint. And so, I mean, and, and this is a farmhouse. This is in the middle of nowhere. They had, like, I saw somewhere, and I forgot to put it in here, but I want to say they had, like, five or ten acres of their own. Like, it was, like, their farm. And so someone's really got to get up in their property and, like, I, um, somewhat know the layout of this house. You know? Like, I don't know. No, I totally get it. That's why I'm trying to picture, like, where the hell the chair was. Because, I mean... I wish that they would have drawn a diagram. Yeah. But (laughs) she sees this, that he's been shot twice in the back of the head. And so she runs directly into the kitchen, which was kind of a larger, spacier kitchen. And she had an old crank phone in there. Because, you know, the 40s. And she dials the police. Before she could actually make the call, she has the phone in hand and she's going to crank... And all of a sudden, two bullets come out of nowhere and hit her in the face. The first one knocks out several of her teeth. Whoa. It it passes completely through her nose and breaks her jaw. The second one goes through her jaw and gets lodged under her tongue. She survived. She stood directly up. She heard the sound of someone cutting or, like, tearing at the screen door trying to get in. And she took off. She ended up running out the other door. Like, and this was nighttime as well. So she's still just in her nightgown. She runs across the highway. Apparently, she had a sister that lived across the highway. And her sister happened to not be home at the time. So she runs another 50 yards down the road to another relative's house who were actually home. And then they end up calling the police. Wow. In the files, it says that he actually went in, whoever this assailant was actually went into the house. He actually did get into the house, not through the door though, but he went back around to the window that he fired through and had climbed through that window And they found, like, evidence of him being in the house. And it was like, they found some bullets. They found um, some shoe impressions that he had stepped in Mr.'s blood and had kind of tramped around the house. And so they took up a whole bunch of, like, the linoleum pieces that had his shoe print and blood in it and stuff like that. So the bullets that they found was actually a 22 rifle, like spent casings in there from a 22 rifle. They also found a flashlight, which was outside the home. Uh, and I know you're going to ask, they did not find any latent prints on it, nor did they <laughs> find prints on the batteries. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, they checked. They lifted five pieces of linoleum from the home that had the bloodstained shoe prints. They found hair in the kitchen on the kitchen table. Uh, They found some latent fingerprints. They found more blood that wasn't a match to the victims. They found some shoe impressions right outside of the window, like outside. 
that were size 9 to 10, and they made a cast out of those. They found, of course, spent rounds, including a slug removed from the window seal, thought to have been spent when shooting the husband through the window. And they actually took the curtains from around the window, like thinking that maybe he had left hair or something on them. So they took the curtains down. Like for the 40s, I think they did a pretty good job at collecting evidence. I forget how far away it was from the house. But they did find car tire tracks outside that didn't match with the uh, owner's car, the owner of the home. So they plaster cast that. They took soil from it. Like, I think they did a pretty bang up job there. Of course, they came in and they took photographs and stuff, which I'm wondering because this is the entire file, the entire case file that I found here. And all, all of these files say that they took photographs, like of the crime scenes and stuff. And yet there are no photographs that are attached in here. Well, that's dissatisfying. No information on those. They had some suspects. They didn't have suspects. I mean, it was kind of all over the place there, too. There's one in February, one in March, one in April, one in May. It's like one a month on the dot. The May one is different. It is different. And we'll t- I'm, I want to talk about the differences with you yeah. here in a little bit. I want to know if these damn people were tied in any way. Because like, as of present day... Texarkana's only got, I think it's a, I got it. Now I can't remember what it said. It's like a population of like 32,000. So imagine in the forties, like what's the connection here? What had been fear among the citizens of Texarkana turned into panic. Stores sold out of locks, blinds, and guns. People began nailing their windows shut, covering their windows with sheets and blankets and making homemade booby traps on their doors and windows. Friends were warned not to go visiting without calling first for fear of being shot for an intruder. Police investigations went into overdrive. They stationed undercover officers posing as lovers along secluded roads. I know! They brought in a state-of-the-art radio system that allowed officers to talk to one another as well as with dispatch. The newspapers ran a photo of the distinct flashlight the attacker left at the Starks farm. The reward fund ballooned to over $7,000, but still no leads. Okay, the Starks attack was pretty much immediately attributed to the Phantom Killer. However, the killer had used a 32 Colt automatic pistol in the other attacks, and the Starks had been shot with a 22 rifle. So they they had assumed now I know that a rifle is longer range but back then I was like looking up what kind of rifles they had back then um and they didn't have like those fancy scopes that you got now so it it had a limit I think it was like 100 yards or something limit on the range I mean that would take a pretty dope marksman to get them both in the freaking face through a window I mean, he's not, nowhere in there did it say that they saw someone standing outside the window. So we know he wasn't close to the window when he shot. Yeah. At night. Yes. (laughs) Yes. At night. (laughs) While the Phantom was on the loose, Texarkana was like a city under siege. Residents armed themselves and curfews were set for local businesses. And I think somewhere I saw in there that there's, um... Their curfew was like 6 p.m. Townwide curfew. Well, it's Which, dark. I mean, it makes sense because that's dark. when that's when the sun goes down yeah. in February or spring. But anyway, 
So in, in spite of the involvement of the Texas Rangers, no conclusive arrest was ever made in connection with the Moonlight murders. Theories spread widely about the Phantom Killer's identity, the killer's targeting of couples, and lack of other identifiable motives, such as burglary, revenge, you know, robbery, such as, led many in the area to believe that the killer was some sort of, quote, sex maniac. Nearly 400 people were interviewed and fingerprinted in connection with these killings. Oh my God, that's a lot. The first 500 pages of these FBI files is basically all the correspondence, writing up crime scene stuff, stuff like that. The last 500 is literally just names and names and names and names of people that they checked fingerprints against. It was kind of mind-blowing because you have to think about back then, they didn't have computers. Like, they couldn't (laughs) just pull it up and do it automatically. They had, like, Rolodexes in a big freaking room where they had to go back there and have people checking these things one at a time. Right. But still, I think about how freaking tedious this would have been. And not to mention that they have nothing to check against from other counties because they would have to go to those counties and request exactly who they were looking for. They don't know who they're looking for. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, but still over 400 people. Like that's a lot that's that ins- they did. That's insane. You can't say that they sat on their ass on this case. Definitely. <laughs> and I mean, another a, another driving force is like in a community that small, you knew these people. And in a community that small, that could be your wife and kids tomorrow, you know, or you and your oh, wife yeah. or whatever. Like Exactly. So we're going to take a 15 and 16 year old, first of all. And then there's also the fact that there was two vulnerable people in a compromising, like make out type position. And then there was a person just existing inside his house. I'm going to start going over some suspects. And there were a lot of actual suspects um, that they really ran down. Like, I don't know how many pages I skipped because it was like new suspect, this person. And then like 40 pages later, it was like, never mind. Someone had actually uh, ransomed the family of one of the victims and they had sent letters saying that they were the person that killed them and that if they didn't send money or meet them at a certain location at this time, this place with this much money, they would come and kill them too and stuff like that. And they really like looked into this stuff and they did um, handwriting analysis and found the guy who had done this and he was like there's no way he could have had any connection with it but he was just exploiting the victim's families and they eventually sent him to prison for that but like still and then some other suspects included an escaped german prisoner of war uh also a man who had tried to pawn just a saxophone somewhere in texas that's sketchy that's a very very good on their part you know um, also an L.A. resident who believed that he may have committed the crimes while in a coma. Like legit, he's from L.A.? I guess he just woke up from a coma and heard about him and he was like, could have been me. There was also a man named, and this was one of the big suspects for a while, um, a man who was attending the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. His name was 
H.D. Tennyson, also known as Duty, he had actually committed suicide and he had left several suicide notes. And in several of them, he actually stated that he was the killer. And they like really dove into that because he had a lot of connections with a lot of the like, actually, he had connections with every single victim. And so they were really diving into that. But then ended up like they started asking around about him and he was actually at like a poker game that night, the night of the Starks murder. And there was like 10 people that were like, yeah, he was here with us that night. So we're not really sure what he's talking about or why he would say he did that. And my guess would be that maybe... He needed a reason for people to accept his suicide. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm sure that's frowned upon as hell. There were lots and lots and lots of suspects. But the one that they liked the most, you can tell us about. Many people believe that a local man named Yule Swinney, arrested in 1947 for auto theft, was the Phantom. His wife confessed to as much at the time, but by law, she could not testify against her husband. She later denied her confession. Swinney remained in prison as a habitual offender until 1973 and died in 1994 without ever implicating himself in the murders. How did they come about Swinney? The only lead that seemed promising came from a rookie Arkansas police officer. He noted that in two of the killings, the cars had been stolen before being abandoned. He was on patrol when he spotted a car that had been reported stolen on the night of the Griffin Moore murders. He staked out the car, and soon a young woman approached it. She was 21-year-old Peggy Swinney. She told the officers that she had recently gotten married to Yule Swinney, who was at the moment in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell yet another stolen car. The officer got in contact with the Atlanta, Texas Police Department, and indeed, they had a witness to Yule trying to sell a stolen car there. They brought the witness to a station where a man in the crowd spotted him and tried to flee out the fire escape. When he was arrested, he begged the officers not to shoot him. In the police car, he asked if he was going to get the electric chair. The officer said Yule wouldn't get the chair for stealing cars. Yule responded, Mr. Johnson, you got me for more than stealing cars. (gasps) What's crazy is that he says that exact statement like five or six times over the course of this investigation. It was also revealed... That Yule had owned a 32 Colt automatic, but had sold it earlier. Police also found a work shirt at Yule's home with the name Stark written on it. Back at the station, Peggy confessed that Yule was the phantom killer. But the law at the time stated that a wife could not be forced to testify against her husband. And Yule wasn't saying anything. The police even tried using truth serum on him, but that only made him pass out. It was shatter. They made him take a dab and all it did was make him fall asleep. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) outside of Peggy's testimony, the police had no real evidence against Yule. His prints didn't match those at any of the crime scenes. No other witnesses could place him with the victims or near any of the crime scenes. And Peggy later recanted her testimony. Without any firm evidence, police knew they couldn't charge Yule Swinney with the murders. Instead, they added a quote-unquote habitual offender charge to his car theft charges, since he had indeed committed several car thefts and counterfeiting scams previously. This allowed the judge to give him the maximum sentence, which is life in prison. He was released in 1973 and died in a Dallas-area nursing home 20 years later. 
a car was stolen on each night of each attack. These cars were found later. His wife's different confessions, okay? One, on June 28, 1946, her first consisted of a tale of them parking near a lake and he got out to use the bathroom. He returned an hour later. Oh, God. His clothes wet from the waist down, (laughs) jumped in the car, and sped away as if he were in a hurry. She claims he never said what it was about or mentioned anything about murder. Apparently, that was the night of one of the murders. Her second in 1946 and third confession in 1947 was quite detailed, and she knew things that were never reported to the news, such as the location of one victim's address book and which pocket it had been in, which was only known by the sheriff at the time, as he had found it and collected it, as well as where Martin's car was found, where the bodies of Martin and Booker were discovered, how many times they had been shot, the fact that Martin was shot in two different locations, and the location of Booker missing saxophone. At one crime scene, she stated that she had walked into the woods while witnessing Ewell murder his victims. There had been a woman's heel print found at that scene. So the um, files that are next are her actual confession. There are two of them, the second confession and then the third confession. She was actually arrested, which is why they think that she confessed to begin with the first time she was arrested um her and her husband were both arrested for car theft because it was like a bonnie and clyde situation they were like still in cars together uh-huh and so when while she was in custody she made that first confession the next time they were talking about charging her and she gave like a, the more detailed confession she said that she had been with yule When he killed James Martin and Betty Jo Booker on April 14th. Okay, so they had had a few beers in Texarkana. And then they drove down to Lover's Lane and parked after midnight on April 14th. And they drove past them 200 feet past the Martin's car. And had got out of their car and walked back to the Martin's car. Her husband had a 32 automatic in one hand and a glove in the other. They took the boy and the girl out of the car and they made them get in their car, which was a stolen Plymouth, and drove them approximately one-fourth of a mile from the automobile when Swinney made Martin get out of the car and climb over the fence, after which he shot him in the face. Mrs. Swinney held the girl in the car. Swinney returned and they drove down the road and turned around. And when they came past the spot where Martin had been... They observed him staggering down the road, whereupon Swinney stopped the car, went up to where he was standing, and shot him again. Then they proceeded down the road, driving first up one side and then down the other, where Swinney made his wife leave the car for approximately 30 minutes, where she claimed in this time he raped Betty Jo Booker. The fact that that was never released to the public that she was raped. Even in the several years after this, Like, they were holding their cards close to them so that they could try to find the person who did this. And she should not have known that. Right. Like, let's find Mm -hmm. out if you're you're telling us the truth. Because, like you said, they had so many fakes come forward. Like, sure, I did it. I was in a coma. It's like, what do you know and how do you know it? Yeah, and the whole fence thing. Like, they weren't found anywhere near a fence. Like, why would you, why would you know that detail? No, but the thing was about that case is that they actually had found um, that spot that was off where they had found like a patch of grass that had 
blood and stuff on it where it looked like there were a struggle, mm-hmm. but they really couldn't, they didn't know that for sure because it was so far away from the, the rest of the crime scene. Like, but how would she know that? Exactly. If I wanted to confess and roll on my husband and tell, but I'm making it up, pretend I'm making it up. All I know is like where the bodies were found literally in my head. I would just be like, we pulled up on them. They were in the car doing da da da. And we pretended we needed help. Like we had a flat. And so the guy got yeah. out of the vehicle and my husband attacked him and I held her down. And then he came and shot her too. You know what I mean? That's the sort of shit. I wouldn't say they ran off to Towards the fence, that's very accurate. Yeah, that's all, that's really detailed. And away yeah. from where your mind would think the struggle happened if you didn't know. Well, and then on top of that, like after she tells the police that he made her get out of the car for 30 minutes so that he could rape this poor woman, she stayed close enough to the car that she could actually hear the girl screaming the whole time. She said that to the police. Ugh. Why would you say that? Then she says, upon return to the car, they drove down the side of the road and Swinney had Miss Booker get out of the car and they walked her to a wooded area whereupon Miss Swinney heard two shots coming from the wooded area. Swinney then drove his car to an area and finally stopped in a secluded area where he changed clothes because the clothes he was wearing had blood on them. This is straight from the file. It's to be pointed out that at the place designated by Mrs. Swinney as to where the clothes were changed is the same point where the Martin boy's address book was found. After changing his clothes, they drove down the road where the Martin boy's car was parked and Swinney got a black case from the back seat of the Martin boy's car, which is they were assuming the saxophone, the saxophone and put it yeah and put it in the back of his car then they returned to Texarkana and drove to a wooded area in the country near Mrs. Uh, Swinney's parents home where they spent the rest of the night and the following day super detailed they confessed to that one but there's not really much she didn't have much to say about the others she then says that a couple days later she went with her husband to to burn the bloody clothes. And then she decided that she wanted to recant that entire story. She says that it was untrue, that she had just made a bunch of stuff up. In 1947, she has another statement. Okay, she talks about when she first started dating Yule. And it was in January of 1946, which is pretty crazy because just a month after they began dating, the first attack took place and they were married pretty quickly and i don't know if that like if it was him and her if they knew that if they got married she couldn't testify against him like legally they couldn't use anything she said but that would be really convenient because they had only been dating for a month and then they got married they drove out to lubbock texas when we turned his car over to some riders They hitchhiked back to Texarkana, where they arrived on March 8th, 1946. They left Texarkana again in March. So she's talking about they were stealing a bunch of cars and then taking them out of town and selling them and then hitchhiking back to town. Then on March 24th, 
We had a late breakfast and then went to a movie. He took me back to the cabin and left me and told me he was going to see a man about a car. He returned to the cabin about 9 p.m. with a green Plymouth sedan. This time he told me to get my things and let's go. We went to Dallas, Texas. The next time we visited Texarkana was March 30th, 1946. They stayed until April 1st. She says they still think Swinney killed those people. I don't know what to do. They don't believe me. So what else do I do but tell them that he did it? So this is when she's recanting. They will believe a lie. If I send Swinney to the chair, that would be on my mind for the rest of my life. For taking his life, he was not the one that killed that little boy and girl on April 13th. I could send him to the chair, then I would be killing him. And then she turns around and says basically the same thing that she said in the one that we just read, that she, she knows all of these details. They gave her a polygraph test, I guess, um, that she, when she was trying to recant, that she failed, which I'm not really sure why they kept interviewing her because they know she that they couldn't put her against him to testify. They indict him anyway. They indict him on all of these um, car theft charges and all this other stuff. And they end up asking for the max sentencing so that he'll have life in prison without getting life in prison. (laughs) So after she confesses for the third time, they go to him to ask him like, well, what do you think about that? Is she lying? Is she telling the truth? Why don't you just confess now? Or you know how police do. He says he advised that, quote, Peggy, my wife, is a complete moron and that all the facts furnished by her were a complete lie. (laughs) It's literally written right here on this FBI file. My wife is a complete moron. (laughs) Well, she married you, didn't she? Proof's in the pudding. Well, and then we're about to jump into something else. Oh, good. Because, so a lot of people were, like, not convinced that it was Swinney at all. There was, like, a 1948 cold case involving the disappearance of a 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter from Texarkana. And a lot of people seemed to think that this was the work of the Phantom Killer. But but this was 1948. This was two years later. Uh-huh. In 1999, there was an anonymous woman who contacted one of the surviving family members. She wrote that she apologized for, quote, what her father had done. But also... There's still controversy, and this is this is where I'm at, actually, that the Stark attacks weren't even done by the Phantom Killer, that it was a completely separate act in order to, for someone to use the Phantom Killer's spree to cover up their own murder. There was, like, a guy later who was facing execution in Texas. He confessed to the Stark attacks. For some reason, they never followed up on that. It actually worked for the family and lived on the farm at the time of the attacks. And then another theory from the FBI themselves is a man named James Allen. They think that was responsible for that one specifically. And that maybe Swinney was responsible for only the other set of three and not the last one. This James Allen fellow, apparently they found out that Virgil Stark had been having an affair with a woman. That woman turned out to be James Allen's woman. Uh So she ended up, after this affair, he found out about this affair. 
she mysteriously died. And they did an autopsy. So he said, he told everyone that she had something called Bright's disease and that that's what she died from. But when they did the autopsy on her, they did not find any evidence of Bright's disease at all. People started speculating that maybe he killed her for the infidelity and that maybe it was like poison or something like that. Mm -hmm. They never actually found any evidence of that. Then the theory is, is that after killing his wife for the infidelity, he used the phantom killer's murders to kill Virgil, which would also, I mean, he, he was a Navy veteran, number one, coming out of the service, like very recently, I, I believe it was like he returned from service in February, which was just a couple months before the Starks murder. That could explain why a different gun was used. But there's like a lot of different things about that set of murders. They were all couples, but they were all really young couples. And they were all murdered or attacked when they were like, quote unquote, parking. But when they were like, you know, out on their lover's lane or whatever, none of them, none of it happened at their home. This last one, the Starks happened in their own home. Yeah, that one is just kind of in left field. And not only that, but this was a middle-aged couple, not a young couple. Yeah, see, that's that's where I was going earlier with, I would have to, like, if I was someone investigating this, I would have to find the ties between these people because their age and their location is not, that doesn't cover the spread for me. It does for me for the first six victims, but these this last couple just doesn't, fit in exactly that's that's what i'm saying they don't make sense other opposing factors i mean the gun is the biggest one yeah you have a 22 rifle on the last one and all of the other ones were the 32 yes and there was actual contact with the victims yeah like straight up contact yeah actually i think every single one of them he at least hit one person over the head with it being that close in contact, I mean, granted that a lot of them were shot in the head like the Starks, but when you're that close and personal, it does not take a marksman to shoot somebody in the face. No. But then in this last one, they had to have been at least 20, at least 20 yards from the window. I'm kind of with the FBI on the fact that maybe the last one was unrelated and was just meant to be a copycat cover-up. But if that's the case... Like, I want to know why the Phantom Killer just stopped. Was he caught? Did he die? Was he Yule? Did it stop because he went to jail? It's just so odd to have one every single month for at least three months if we don't count the Starks. And then it just stops as fast as it started. While other towns usually try to forget legacies like this, Texarkana, like, really embraced it. Killings inspired two movies. The first was called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. So I tried. It was made in like 1976. Oh, God. And I tried real hard. I tried so hard to watch it last night. <laughs> was it so cringe? Oh, oh, it was so cringe. Oh, it was but it's now It's now like this cult classic. Apparently people love it. And I, I could not, I couldn't make it through the first 20 minutes. <laughs> oh my God. You gotta be in a certain mood for that. It was also written and directed by a man 
named Charles B. Pierce, who actually was a resident of Texarkana. So he did play pretty loose and fast with the facts. Um, There's like a lot of stabbings and stuff in there, which obviously never happened. He embellishes the killings and stuff, you know, for shock value. It was the 70s. Yeah. Then in 2014, Bloomhouse Media released a like kind of sequel of the same name. Yeah. And I watched the first 15 minutes of that too and I couldn't do that one either. It's ugh, it's also super cringe. And what's pretty cool though is that the town that dreaded sundown the the original was actually filmed there in Texarkana like on location and the locals and everything there were actually cast as extras. And they have this thing now where every single year at Halloween, they play the movie, like um, movie in the park or whatever. It's screened on this big screen. Like the Mothman Prophecies Town, Mount Pleasant. And apparently that's like right right where one of the murders took place. Oh, so they're all about it. Officially, this case is still unsolved. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?